0: Well, welcome to another Art of Relations podcast. I'm Chris Grace. I'm Tim Milhoff. And uh, we have a special guest joining us today, Tim, uh, Dr. Brad Wilcox out of the Director of National Marriage Project, uh, University of Virginia. Brad, welcome to our program. It's
1: great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, It's good to have you. And we have just been impressed, uh, Brad, with so much of your work. Um, Real quickly, just for the audience, uh, you're a sociologist trained at... Virginia and undergrad and Princeton grad, it sounds like. And uh, then you're now at uh, both a couple of places, University of Virginia teaching there as a faculty member. That's right, yep. And then you direct uh, the uh, National Marriage Project. How did all that start? (laughs)
1: Well, there's a guy named David Papina who's a sociology professor at Rutgers University, and uh, he started this uh, a number of years ago, uh, probably about 27 years ago, I guess. And he was retiring in 2009 and thought that it'd be great to sort of pass the National Marriage Project from Rutgers to UVA. So that's this That's the quick story.
0: So, you've been doing this now since then?
1: Since then. And then a few years ago, some colleagues, including Scott Stanley, who you just mentioned at the University of Denver, um, and I started the Institute for Family Studies, and that's designed to do kind of public education and some research around family questions as well. Um, And I'm also a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute Mm -hmm. um, doing work there on the nexus between family and economics. So a couple of different things that all are kind of in your space.
2: Yeah, that's great. we got to get better guests. We (laughs) just have to. Somebody who's got some
1: experience.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, what drew you to this topic? Like uh, your grad school, a ton of topics, but what drew
1: you to? Sure. I was, yeah, I was raised by a single mother. And Uh um, so kind of in college had the sense that, you know, in a more personal way that dad's were important mm. and that mm. that became to kind of the, the conclusion that marriage was that institution that kind of connected dads typically to their kids yeah. and that I wanted to work around sort of uh family structure marriage mm. fatherhood you know um and and religion as well mm. i was raised um in a home episcopalian home and you know had some contact with kind of christianity at that point and wanted to sort yes. of explore the nexus between uh, religion and family life as well. Mm-hmm.
2: That's great, and we're familiar with your research, but not familiar with you. I see you're married. Yes, I'm married. Yep. Great. How, can I ask how long. Sure, we've been married about 23 years now. Oh, that's great. So, nice.
1: Um, and how'd you meet? We actually met at UVA. Our uh, April 1st, April Fool's Day, uh, 1992. <laughs> <laughs> we met, and um, <laughs> uh, there's, yeah, there's a story, but uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it's a good story. Just I, I had seen my wife <clears throat> Danielle. Around grounds at UVA. Uh, yeah. We took a, a class on Nietzsche. That was the first thing. No there. way. And, uh, and I sort of noticed her in the <laughs> Nietzsche class. And then I saw her in the library reading First Things. Um, and I was like, this is oh, kind of wild. It was an great. attractive blonde you know, studying Nietzsche, so reading go. First <laughs> Things. So, kind of, you know, so we had some mutual friends, and they set us up on a blind date, uh, and so, so to speak, on that April 1st. Um, yeah. And uh, so, and Took us about three years to kind of figure things out, and then we got engaged and married in
2: 1995. I uh, yeah. met my wife. Uh, we were taking a class on Jean Paul Sartre. Okay. No, I'm kidding.
0: Yeah, I was at a SpongeBob movie. <laughs> I saw my life. So, <laughs> and it's kind of been on the other side. So, so hey, uh, Brad. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things is your journey in this, just as a person, and, and just that idea of parenthood or uh, even children raised without family or without fathers. And um, I just saw a New York Times article that you responded to that kind of pushed back on that a little bit for you. I think it said something like... You know, why are we still pushing against single mothers? It's really difficult. And you responded to that saying, listen, there's a lot of research out there about the role of fathers. And what in general um, uh, would you like to say about that? And, yeah, just your thoughts.
1: Well, you know, I think it's obviously important to recognize and acknowledge, you know, that many kids um, raised in, you know, non intact families and single parent families whatnot turn out just fine right you know right. my sister and I are both doing well now um, happily married a couple of kids but I mean between the two of us um, and um, gainfully employed all that kind of stuff so it's important to acknowledge that you know for any given kid, you know, they can do just fine in, in a variety of family contexts. But I'm also a sociologist, and I will tell you that, mm-hmm. you know, on average, kids are more likely to flourish when they're being raised by their own married mother and father, mm-hmm. um, having that connection to their biological parents. Um, you know, having two people who are really invested in them, who yeah. know them from birth. You know, all these things are really helpful for kids. And there's a lot of research, not just kind of on the impact of families uh, or family structure on kids but even we're sort of finding more and more about how family structure, kind of at the community level seems to impact communities. Mm. Um, Everything from, you know, uh, crime to what's called economic mobility. That's basically the ability that poor kids can over the course of their lives realize the American dream financially. Mm. And the American dream is stronger for poor kids in communities where there are more two-parent families. Um, And so the point simply is that you know, is it on average, both kids, men, women, and communities are more likely to be flourishing when you have strong, intact two-parent families in the mix.
0: Um, there's just some uh, news out, Brad, today that I read. Uh, the prime minister of New Zealand, she's the third prime, female prime minister. His name, her name is Jacinda Ardern. And she's about to go on leave because right. she's pregnant, <clears throat> right. and she's going to be one of the f- first in history as a head of state to have a baby, and she's not married, right? right? She, now she's living with the person. It's that kind of thing that you have found in your research that does some some damaging things in some respects. Obviously, she could be a wonderful mother, and it sure. could be a great family. But I really don't know anything about her other than you know, they love her over there. But this idea of being in a cohabitating relationship and raising a child isn't always the best for a child, whether they're in America or New Zealand. I know you've studied different countries And America. What's your thoughts when you read about that?
1: Yeah, that's a a great example. Um, I did a report with a colleague, uh, Lori DeRose, at Georgetown um, and some other folks. We looked at sort of cohabitation and stability for kids in Mm -hmm. the United States and in Europe. We found is that kids who were born to cohabiting parents were ninety percent more likely to see their mom and dad break up wow. by the time they turned twelve and we were controlling for a variety of factors including you know parental education, grandma's education, um, some things that might have you know confounded or distorted that relationship so mm-hmm. the the point I would make is that again in general, you know marriage is an institution. It's not even even a Christian institution in the sense that, I mean, we obviously see marriage in, you know, in Egypt, in India, in China, um, that different civilizations have used to kind of guide adult relationships and stabilize um, the connections that parents typically would have Mm -hmm. with their children. Mm -hmm. And so when you see a departure from that with cohabitation, for instance, as as one good example, like you're mentioning in New Zealand, even though this prime minister may be a great mom and— and their family might go the distance you know the concern i would have with that situation is that you know um they're not kind of uh expressing a commitment to one other context of marriage before having a child and then she's also signaling to her country that this is an okay okay thing to do um i I wrote an op-ed in usa today about a week and a half ago kind of calling the rock yeah. here in the u.s to oh, task that was great yeah for the same thing he's having a second child with his girlfriend lauren hashian um outside of wedlock and that might just go fine for them but again he's a very prominent figure here in the states and yeah. globally obviously as a as a sort of a a major star and it would be nice if he would actually just yeah. put a ring on him and and signal his commitment to mm-hmm. to lauren and to kind of their family future together before having you know Maybe number two in this case.
0: Yeah, I thought that was well written, by the way. I loved it. And I think The Rock is such an influential yeah. person, just yeah. like,
2: you know, like you, uh, Dr. Yeah, I was going to say, he's the second most influential bald man I can think of. <laughs> right. um, but Brad, Brad, here's, we get this question a lot. And I think on one level, people are just confused about why cohabitation is so bad. In other words, we were both talking on the way over here that you and I both teach a class on family communication. So I do this thing with my students. I don't tell them ahead of time, but I come in and make an argument for living together. I just sit down and say, how many of you have had a roommate situation that just went really badly? You thought it was going to work out really well. And I actually did my senior year undergrad. I said, so why not live together and give it a trial on many different levels and see each other 24-7 rather than sporadically? And they're all sitting there shaking their heads like, man, that just makes a ton of sense. And I say, but you know what's funny is research points in the opposite direction. Could you, for our listeners, just unpack a little bit why this is not a good idea uh, for the long-term health of the marriage as well as the long-term health of the kids, you elaborated on just a little bit.
1: So I have to be honest here that the, the important thing to note on this big question is that the evidence is much stronger when it comes to kids on yeah. this issue than it is when ah, it comes to the adults. Nice clarification. Um, although, again, I would sort of say that from a kind of a community perspective, the whole point of marriage is for the kids. You know, it's not really mm, for the adults. But mm. so what we know is that, again— People who are having kids in a cohabiting union are much more likely to break up than those who are married, and this makes sense, right? Because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you're in Poland or if you're in Sweden, if you're in Norway, Italy, the United States, Mexico, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: people see cohabitation as a more flexible arrangement, as entailing less commitment. And this is, you know, um, something that we've seen in research actually recently, um, where they're interviewing people across Europe and. obviously differences from these countries in Europe, but they do find across Europe that people sort of see marriage as really the gold standard of commitment. Mm. And they see cohabitation Mm. as giving people more freedom and flexibility. Mm -hmm. So for the adults, that can be attractive. But if you're a child Mm. and your parents or the two people who are heading up your household are in a more flexible relationship, um, the flip side of that is not just less commitment, but oftentimes more jealousy, more Mm. infidelity, Mm. more violence, and much more instability. Um, and if you have had kids, if you cared for kids, if you babysat kids, yeah. you know they thrive on stable routines with stable caregivers. And that's not what cohabitation gives for kids. So that's that's the kid point I would make quickly.
2: Yeah.
1: On the adult side, I think the issue there is that, and Scott Stanley at the University of Denver has made this point um, with Galena Rhodes, his colleague there, is that we're seeing today, people are often kind of sliding into cohabiting relationships.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There's not a ton of commitment. They're often asymmetrical, where one party is sort of looking at this as a stepping stone to marriage or, or something serious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Your party is like, "This is hey, this is a way to save on the rent <laughs> or have yeah. access to yeah. you know good sex on a regular basis." Right. And so the problem, of course, then is that you don't have people on the same page mm-hmm. in their relationship. You can have people devoting a lot of time to someone who's not really that committed to them, yeah. and then you also can see people um, kind of just they. You know they get together kind of willy nilly they never had serious conversations about their future, their common values, but then they spend a year together, they've got a couch, maybe a puppy together, and mm-hmm. then their friends are asking questions, mm-hmm. their parents are asking mm-hmm. questions. they kind of just kind of drift into marriage, yeah. and those couples um are particularly likely to suffer um you know more conflict, poor communication, more right. divorce if they go ahead and get married so the point about cohabitation in adults is that it doesn't seem to really prepare people well for a strong and stable marital future, um, and in some cases, it can kind of put you together with someone who's not really committed to you, and also can kind of take you off the market. So I had a, a neighbor, for instance, and mm-hmm. she was uh, moved in with a guy who's about three years younger than she was in her late twenties, um, and they were together for five years. Mm-hmm. So finally, she's thirty-three. She's ready to right, get married and right, have kids. Right. She's kind of pressuring him in a very powerful way. He's like, you know yeah. what? I'm just not ready. You know, I'm just not I'm not yeah. ready for this. And she's like, this is crazy. And so she just broke off the relationship. Yeah. And she's still single, no kids. Yeah. And she devoted five years of her life to this guy. Mm-hmm. So again, the point is is that the freedom and flexibility that seem attractive, I think, to a lot of younger adults when it comes to cohabitation, um, can have some downsides. So.
0: Yeah, it's uh, one of the studies we talk about and maybe you could comment on your co- a colleague at the University of Virginia James Cohen so James Cohen did some work on handholding he's an l- amazing expert on if you can believe that on handholding, hand-holding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked about him at this podcast but as a colleague of yours there he found this whole notion then of about commitment and the fascinating thing is he put people through this group uh, just for the listeners a reminder if they haven't heard this before That individuals who are about to get shocked anticipated this shock with a lot of stress and anxiety. Uh, But when they held the hand of a stranger, their anxiety went down and wasn't as high. And then when they had the hand of the person they were married to, it went down even lower. But the cohabitating partners, their stress level was about indistinguishable from strangers. And I know you know about this study. What do you think about that? I mean, that's commitment. That's cohabitation that really points to something odd or amazing Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if he's in, un, maybe he's figured it out yet exactly what the variable is, but when people don't make a commitment, it's as if something comes in, stress, trauma, mm-hmm. anticipation of pain, and they feel almost like someone doesn't have my back, they haven't made a commitment to me.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of a, a telling example. And here, and he's, he's not a conservative by any stretch, he's just kind of a good scientist doing this work, and, and again, he found, as you just pointed out, that people derive a lot more comfort in these stressful situations when they're with a spouse rather than a cohabiting partner it does signal kind of the fact that marriage really is different um it really does kind of signal to yourself to your partner to your family members your friends that you're really in it for the long haul um and one way to think about too just this difference is to think about kind of the point of entry here and when we actually ask people about when did your cohabiting relationship begin Oftentimes the the two partners will give different dates. Yes. Yeah. Which is fascinating, right? So they don't even have the same like <laughs> they're not they even on the same page in terms of when this thing began. Yeah. Whereas when you get married, you know, you often have <clears throat> a date. You know, uh, well you've got a date yeah. and usually a ceremony. It might be in a, a church or, right. or or a synagogue or it could be at, you know, down at the, the county court, you know, courthouse. But people kind of know when that happened. Mm-hmm. And usually there's there are friends and family members there to kind of mark and punctuate. Mm-hmm start of your entry into this relationship. So just kind of the more you unpack cohabitation and marriage, the more you realize that they are qualitatively different from one another.
2: You know, we were in London um, just last summer and we were in this incredibly long line for the Churchill War Room. It, it went on forever and we didn't know if we were going to make it. And so um, there was a young couple in front of us. So we just got to talking to the, this couple and uh, we told them that we'd been married for like you, 20 plus years and uh, I said, Are you guys uh, married? And he goes, No, we're dating. And she, she turned to him and said, No, we're living together. And you could see the tension just a little bit like, Hey, we're not dating. We're, but, but interesting that they weren't on the same, necessarily the same page verbally as well as maybe even um, intellectually, they weren't on the same page. I thought that was really telling. And you could tell it bugged her. Mm-hmm. That he said
1: dating. Right. So, yeah. On well, one thing, too, there is a gender story here. And again, it's not true for everyone, but we right. do see, generally speaking, that in a cohabiting relationship, she's much more likely to be committed to the mm-hmm. long term mm-hmm. than he is. Ah. And in a marriage relationship, there's still a gap, you know, where she's a bit more committed, but the gap is much smaller in yeah. commitment. So, yeah. again, the question is well, who's, whose interests are only being served, oh, at least good. on a short term basis, yeah. by a yeah. cohabitation? And that's an open question.
2: I think it's important, though, to remind our listeners that not all couples uh, live together for the same reasons. You've been really astute to say that economics plays a role in why couples live together and that even it's not just financially viable for some couples with the current laws and the current structures for them to get married. They actually get punished a little bit for doing that. Can you unpack, because I don't want everybody to think a couple gets married because they're Um, shirking traditional marriage. They're making a protest statement. I don't think that's true of all couples, but you've noticed that for some couples, this is an economic reason why they don't officially get married.
1: Yeah. So there's um, um, work done by Sharon Sasser, Cornell university on cohabitation. And she finds that working class and poor Americans are more likely to cohabit and move in quickly um, in Mm -hmm. part for financial reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're hoping to save on the rent Um, and they see this as kind of an economically feasible way to do things. And then the related point that gets to your question more directly is that, um, the way that many of our means tested policies like Medicaid, for instance, Mm -hmm. and food stamps, for instance, are structured is that when you kind of, um, you know, if you were to apply for them, um, having gotten married to someone, say you have a, a baby together, um, and let's say that the mother is is earning about $15,000 a year and the father is earning, say, you know, um, $30,000 a year. You know, Their joint income could mean that they're not going to qualify for Medicaid, they're not going to qualify for food stamps, or they're going to lose some benefits for when yeah. it comes to food stamps. Um, and so when it comes to kind of thinking about health care or food, lower-income couples— um, you know can face a difficult choice right and then right. should we just live together and often have you know the mom kind of apply for or 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 get access to one of these benefits um, or we get married pool our income officially and apply and then maybe lose right access I think particularly when it comes to health care you know there's real concern you know obviously with particularly with a child <laughs> in the in the picture and, and also even the cost of paying for for the birth depending upon their situation you know That's so right. anyways the point simply ways is, is that I think there's a calculus that orients a lot of working class and poor Americans away from marriage.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and unfortunately, there's another calculus for upper-middle-class parents or upper-middle-class adults who tend to enjoy better incomes individually and then mm. are thinking about maybe buying a house together mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. establishing a 401K down the road. Yeah. And so there's sort of the calculus for them economically is actually pushing them towards marriage oftentimes yeah. and in ways that just reinforce um you know the stability of their relationships and their financial
2: advantages as well. And, and the point I want people to take away, our listeners from a communication standpoint, every couple that lives together has a story. And for us to stereotype and to, and to think one thing, it's great to hear their background, their story, why they're doing this, their particular struggles, Um, I think as Christians, we need to be compassionate. I think we need to lead with compassion. So I I think that's great, Brad, that there are a bunch of reasons. When we started speaking at marriage conferences roughly 22 years ago, we do this whole session for pre-married couples. Very few were living together. And now we've seen that it is easy 70% of the people at this session are now living together for a multitude of reasons. So it really is a cultural trend that we're seeing um, quite a bit.
0: Yeah, uh, Brad, uh, just in the idea of marriage, the uh, I, I think you called it a marriage premium, um, marriage benefit, uh, you, there's another uh, thing you've written about and studied, and that is the benefits of marrying in your mid to late 20s, Um uh, real quickly on that one, I know there's a lot of stuff out there on this. What, what would you say to couples that are considering this? And I mean, that's such a hopeful thing to say. I love that, that you should be married. Th- and that's a great age to do this. Um, talk a little bit about that and what what you uh, found there.
1: Sure. Well, there's, I guess, before we get kind of get into this, the two important points to make here is that when we look at patterns of divorce, kind of the sweet spot in terms of your lowest risk of divorce is sort of the late 20s, early 30s. When We look at marital quality. The sweet spot is sort of the mid twenties, you know. So uh-huh. the point I'm making is that there's a bit of a different story for marital stability versus marital quality. And when it comes to marital quality, I think the advantage of getting married in kind of your mid twenties, kind of broadly defined, is that you know you are younger, um, you have a chance to kind of establish a common life together, to establish mm-hmm. traditions, mm-hmm. you know how you handle you know summer vacation, how you handle Christmas, yeah. you know Thanksgiving, et cetera, with you know with with your family. Um, you can kind of think about how you're going to handle work and family, you know, in a more intentional way at a young age, um, and also for, for folks who are really interested in having kids, it's it's a great time to go right. ahead and have kids. I mean, right. that's when women are you know more fertile um, and and biologically kind of um, primed to have kids. So all these things kind of play into um, I think the advantage of having. Um, a wedding in your mid-20s, broadly defined. We also find, too, that couples who are kind of on the same page religiously are more likely to get married in their mid-20s, whereas if they wait longer, they're more likely to marry someone outside of their own religious community. Really? Maybe it's, you know, they've perhaps moved away to some extent from their religious community, either geographically or otherwise, Mm -hmm. or, you know, they're less selective in terms of who they end up with, you know, as they get a little bit older. so there are a couple of reasons, I think, why getting married in your mid-20s seems to make sense. And on the divorce point, it's also important to acknowledge that if couples are attending church together um, and they're getting married in their earlier mid-20s, their divorce risk comes down pretty markedly. So it's kind of a protective yeah. factor against the sort of, I think, immaturity that sometimes couples who are getting married in their, particularly guys, who are getting married in their early 20s or mid-20s mm. you know, will experience.
2: That role of community is so important. You write about that a lot. That it, it really does take a village. And, but that people don't do that. People are more isolated. Is kind of what you're noticing a little bit today. Is uh, through a multitude of reasons we don't form deep roots with other community members, and we're paying the price for that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's definitely the case. And I think it's you know on the one hand we're hyper connected with social media, yeah. Um, yeah. And but it's obviously kind of a, it can be a superficial connection. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know, for for couples, um, whether they're young, middle-aged, or older, I think it's great to be involved and connected to some kind of small group where there's a regular um, sense of, of accountability, where everyone's able to kind of help one another when someone gets cancer or someone mm-hmm. loses a job, whatever mm-hmm. else you might, you know, or, there, or there's a difficult teenager, you know, um, there's other people to kind of, you know, seek help uh, from. Um, when, you know, when the going gets tough. Um, so I think, yeah, marriages are much stronger when people are embedded in some kind of local community and a small group would be one good example of that.
2: But what makes that hard is our frenetic lives. Like the wor- we have three boys, all were athletic. And there was one year we just lost our minds. We allowed two of them to be on travel teams. And, and it was insane. We, we were separate every weekend. Church was something you did when you weren't in the finals of a basketball tournament, and we would sit with people in the stands that we sort of kind of knew each other. But, sure. but these aren't the people that are going to be showing up at your front step if there's an illness or right. checking in on your marriage. Right. So we felt the most disconnected we had ever felt during that crazy season of travel, basketball, and all that different kind of stuff. So, and by the way, all the parents were in the same boat. We're like, hey, we know that we're crazy busy. This is imbalanced, but. The community takes effort, and we're going to have to communicate to the kids eventually. Hey, I'm sorry, you're not running the show. Completely, you're just not running the show. So, uh, yeah, interesting that we need that connectiveness. That's a great point,
0: Brad. This has been uh, just great to talk with you. I, here's what I think we ought to do. Let's continue the conversation. Yeah. There are so many topics. You've your research. I, I we want to ask a number of questions about what what you're doing now. What's exci- You know, what some exciting findings and things you're doing. Uh, so it'd be great to. I didn't get to my Nietzsche question. I had a, I had a Nietzsche <laughs> well, question. let the, the next podcast. Do that? Okay, yeah. All right, Brad. Thanks for joining us. Thanks uh, for Great work uh, uh, where you're at, and it's just a, a blessing. I know a lot of people are reading the works that you, you're putting out, and um, both of the National Marriage Project, and then also AEI and all of the work you're doing there. So thanks for that, and thanks for uh, taking time to be on our
1: show. It's great to be here, you.